cliffcentral.com. Please note that the views expressed and the advice provided in this show are for general advice and entertainment purposes only. Nothing stated should be treated as a substitute for your own independent legal advice based on your own specific facts and objectives. Therefore, the presenter and CliffCentral.com accept no liability of any nature whatsoever, either expressed or implied. Law, like you've never heard it before. The Laws of Life. With Gary Hertzberg on CliffCentral.com. I'm Gary Hertzberg with a, with a terrible summer cold, and this is The Laws of Life on CliffCentral.com. Alongside me and feeling on top of the world is Lionel Makokutlela. Welcome, Lionel. Thank you, Gary. Do matter to our listeners and to our guests today, and I hope you do feel much better. Well, if I sound a bit like uh, Peppa Pig with, with, a, <laughs> with a snorting most of the time, forgive me, I have a blocked nose and a sore throat and all the rest. Don't want to bore you with those details. So today we have a two-part show. First up, we're talking about government tenders for business, really, and uh, we are going to be discussing the revised preferential procurement regulations. It may sound like a mouthful, but it's very interesting, and to make it much more interesting is specialist attorney on the subject, Claire Tucker. She's a partner at Bowman's and head of public law and regulatory. Hmm. That sounds very interesting. Later on in the show lines for our second feature, we feature the man who was fired for missing sales targets. How? Yeah. Just like that. The law on this one is so interesting. Can you be fired for poor work performance if you just can't meet the targets? And what if the targets are completely unreasonable? And the Labor Appeal Court had to deal with this very one. So we're going to be talking to Steve Parkinson and legal advisor Nicolette Russ of Solidarity for the second segment. Wow. Now that's going to be very interesting, Gary. Yeah. A lot of people are interested in this, in that one, especially people that are in sales. And most yeah. of us are pushing targets all the time. And then people that head up. The sales departments, they need to know what their rights are and how far they can push. Certainly. Our email address, law, L-A-W, at cliffcentral.com. Our Facebook page, The Laws of Life with Gary Hertzberg. And Twitter lines? It's at Hertzlaw, H-E-R-T-Z-L-A-W. H-E-R-T-Z-L-A-W. Please follow us and... Uh, Tweet with us and oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, we enjoy the interaction. And they can actually do suggest any uh, topics that they want us to talk about. Sure. Yeah. Today we chat to, uh, as I said, attorney Claire Tucker about all things tender. Oh, yeah. Love me tender. <laughs> Love me true. Never let me go. That's yeah. Lionel's version of the 1950s uh, Elvis. I'm trying. Uh, not bad lines. Yeah, do you think, do you think, uh, Clef? Would Claire, do you know that song by Elvis Presley? <laughs> I don't think I could beat that rendition, so I'll leave it at that. <laughs> listen, top lawyers read law reports at home. They don't listen to music. Do you uh, listen to music, Claire? Uh, occasionally, when I'm not sure. Uh, when you're not working. Exactly. Okay. Um, so we're going to be talking to Claire about revised preferential procurement regulations that were gazetted in January. We're very current here. It's about two weeks ago. So we want to know all about it. Let me introduce Claire to you. She's a partner at Bowman's, as I said. She's head of public law and regulatory. She has a BALLB from WITS hmm. and an MSc in law and development from the London School of Economics. 
Her accolades include leading practitioner in the international who's who of public procurement and government contracting. We don't mess around on the show. We get the best of the best. Or the cream de la cream of this world. Yeah. It's Claire.Tucker at Bowman'sLaw.com. And that's the person we are talking to. Claire, uh, we have now a revised set of procurement regulations. Our Minister of Finance has, says, has said that these regulations will empower small businesses and rural, rural, rural and township enterprise through procurement. Can you explain on this one? Sure. I mean, these regulations have been a long time in coming. There have been a number of drafts of them. And what these regulations essentially are are the culmination of a debate that's been going on in government for some time about how much of government spend should be used on, as you say, empowering small black businesses, how much of it should be used on smaller businesses in general, and very importantly, how important price is when you put tenders out and when government procures goods and services. So this is obviously a key issue for all of us, not only as small businesses, but also as taxpayers, because we play on both sides of this. The more government spends on procuring goods and services, the more ultimately the taxpayer has to has to pay out. So Treasury has always tried to, to march quite a firm line um, with government in the saying to government departments, look, I understand the sort of developmental imperatives of the economy, but come on, guys, at the end of the day, tenders need to sharpen their pencil. We need to get the most competitive price. And in doing this, Treasury is actually given a mandate by the Constitution because the Constitution says that all procurement should be, as a guiding principle, competitive, cost-effective, transparent, equitable. So these are the sorts of principles that the Constitution itself lays down. So you can see that it's an area that's ripe for debate, particularly in a developing economy such as ours. What the Constitution also says, though, is that in the Equality Clause, it says government is entitled to recognize the inequalities of our past, to recognize that we have historical disadvantage, particularly in the economic sector. And so government is allowed to give a preference. And these preferential procurement policy framework regulations which, as you say, is quite a mouthful, usually just called the triple PFA. The tri- triple PFA is that framework that comes from the Constitution that guides how government is allowed to give preference to black business in particular and, you know, in the economic sector, particularly to smaller business. So it is an important step in that debate, but it still, I think, isn't everything that some parts of the economy would have wanted. And it does place certain restrictions on how exactly preference can be used. And we see some government departments, you know, every day, not necessarily uh, should we say agreeing with Treasury's approach to this, and we can maybe discuss some of that in a minute. Um, I think that the relation, or not I think, we know the relationship between our president and the finance minister is not a great one. D- did this have any bearing on, on these regulations? Sure. I mean, the, the, the key debate that's going on in our economy is between national treasury that is basically saying we need to discipline ourselves in how we spend money. Um, you know, President Zuma at the moment is speaking a lot about radical economic transformation mm. and particularly the other day even was saying, oh, it is national treasury that is prohibiting radical economic transformation. So these regulations play out very much in that whole sphere of treasury trying to discipline government departments in what they do. Um, you know, a big debate that sometimes happens is should government just procure from, say, 51% black-owned business, in other words, only from black business? Now, obviously, you can imagine that if you have a 
very big um, uh, something that government needs to procure, like a power station or, um, you know, like coal from coal mines. Mm. If government is to say, I will only do business with those businesses that are 51% black owned, in other words, com- you know, almost completely black controlled, black owned, etc. I will only do business from those. The pool of people from whom you're going to do business is going to be very tiny. And that tiny pool of people is essentially able to dictate completely what the price is at which you do business. So the price rockets up. Government is now able to to say that they're fulfilling a developmental or a radical transformation imperative. But goodness, we are all paying for it. Yeah, it doesn't help us. Yeah, the taxpayers are ultimately paying for it. Yes. So that's the… that's the, the problem that uh, between government really and, and Treasury, they don't see eye to eye on this one. Yes, and when the triple PFA regulations were actually enacted, in in some business circles, people see this triple PFA as being the regulations that allow preference to black business. But these are Treasury's regulations, so they're actually they're disciplining regulations, yeah. which are saying this is all that you are allowed to do in, in terms of the sphere. And as I say, they've been through a number of iterations. In some of the earlier iterations, um, you know, you asked me specifically about the sort of empowering small businesses. In some of those earlier versions, there was quite a lot of preference given to just doing business with these small black businesses, almost sort of trying to force all government spend into that sphere. An interesting balance has been struck in these new regulations because what they've essentially tried to say is, look, you may say in a tender that 30% of the tender must go to those small businesses, but you can't say that you will only do business with the small businesses. So what this is saying is, for example, in a power station, if you think of something like Madupi and Kusile, um, you know, when you're procuring, say, uh, the civil works, they're saying, look, we're not saying you should only get a small, you know, contractor who's never done this kind of thing before because my goodness the uh, the boiler's going to fall it's down certainly. the chimney's going to collapse that doesn't make any sense but what you can say is that when the bigger companies come to build at this power station they're going to have to subcontract a portion of the works mm. to one of these smaller businesses now this sort of thing has been going on informally um without a regulated regime in a number of the big government um, departments already. But this is formalizing it and saying, look, this is acceptable. And it's saying it's acceptable as a pre-qualification criteria. So before you even get to debate functionality and price, they're saying you can have this as a stipulation. How have the new regulations or the, the revised ones that we're talking about helped the subcontractors, the small guys, how's, how's this changing things? So it does clarify some of the rules around subcontracting and it does specifically allow this preference. So for example, it says that, um, uh, you may have a preference in terms of which, um, 30% is subcontracted to a qualifying small business, which is 51% black owned or to a qualifying small business owned by people living in rural or underdeveloped township areas. So what a lot of uh, state companies have already been trying to do is, you know, again, we come back to it's such a a good example, Matu Pinkasili, because there were literally sort of 40 um, procurement contracts per power station that were put out. And there was a lot of experimentation around these rules and a lot of them in a good way to, to try and foster development. So there was always a debate, though, about whether you 
you could say, well, this subcontractor must come from Lepalali. And what this is clarifying is that you can say in a, in a contract, look, it must be Lepalali owned businesses that are qualifying for the subcontract. Mm. Obviously, again, Treasury's big imperative here is that we don't create too much of a small pool that somebody can really just write their own price on Absolutely. a piece of paper and pass yeah. it across the table. Yeah. What about um, us trying to promote local products? I know there's an outcry here. There's so much being imported. Can a tender specify that there must be local content and the amount of local content? Sure. So that is something that the Department of Trade and Industry obviously has been uh, particularly promoting in the economy. And what the Department of Trade and Industry does is it stipulates certain what it calls designated sectors. So it says that something like transmission cables, it, it hopefully, and you know, this is always a big debate, but what it's supposed to do is really scan the South African economy and say, you know what, we can do transmission cables. Everybody's getting cables in from China because it's really cheap mm. in China to, to produce them. They've got an oversupply, but actually that isn't helpful for local business. So we're going to say we do have local manufacturing capability in transmission cables. So anytime a transmission power um, supply contract goes out, at least a designated threshold, like say 60% of the cable supplied, must be locally produced cables. And there's obviously all sorts of complicated methodologies for working out whether they really are locally produced. But DTI has really been trying to get into all of our sectors and in that way sort of push targets that are maybe a bit of a stretch target to encourage manufacture. The difficulty with this type of thing is that it's obviously got to be sustainable and you've got to keep doing it. Yeah. You know, we, we've got a big standoff in the renewable energy space at the moment, which is reported in the papers almost every day, in terms of which there are all sorts of industries that have been created specifically by DTI um, through its incentive programs. But, you know, I read in the paper yesterday that one of the Kucha um, facilities employing um, 127 people is now standing idle because of these debates. So, <laughs> you know, it, yeah. it's quite a difficult area to interfere in because in as much as you try to foster development, you're then actually committing in some way to keep keep on that developmental track. And I think in the present political climate, it's quite difficult. To balance it. Yes, and to yeah. keep things going because there's so much debate and uncertainty. Can I digress for a moment and talk to you about open tender process? Do you, I mean, obviously you know all about the Gauteng government trying to bring this in last year. I think it's been brought in. Is it successful? Is it working? And what actually is an open tender process? Um, so essentially, you see, you need to understand that the triple PFA are, is about preferment. It's about the extent to which uh, black businesses can be preferred in the tender process. Mm. Treasury also has a whole nother set of regulations yep. published in terms of the Public Finance Management Act and the Municipal Finance Management Act, which is also about disciplining government in how it spends money. And there are very detailed stipulations in those regulations which government is supposed to follow. I mean, I think that you'll all see in the courts that Government's ability to follow those is sometimes constrained, sometimes maybe through corruption, but other times simply through maladministration. You know, these are difficult things to apply. We're sort of setting ourselves up as a very kind of developed economy in the rules that we apply. A lot of them you find resonance in the EU. 
in terms of these procurement rules, and it's often very difficult, especially for people like munis, to apply them. What a lot of government departments are trying to do is move to sort of open portals where they openly publicize the tenders that are out there. They have one way in which you can access tenders to try and root out corruption, but I think also to try and just bring a measure of discipline and transparency to the process. So I think certainly Gauteng has been making great strides in, in trying to distance itself politically also maybe from, you know, what is happening in other parts of the country and, you know, in parts of parastatals where things are much less transparent. And every day you see cases in the courts about how uh, – Information is denied in tender processes and people go all the way up to the constitutional court to try and get access to documents and tender processes. Mm. Obviously, anything done uh, in the dark, who knows what happens. Oh, certainly. Clay, I just wanted to find out because um, most people, especially small businesses, are complaining about the tender processes that in most cases, the reason, uh, the fact that a tender is being advertised already, you'd find that they've, they've got a preferable uh, service supplier. So how is this open uh, process going to really curb that whole process of favorism or nepotism taking place? Mm. Sure. So, I mean, that kind of thing is definitely not favored and, mm. and hasn't been lawful for a long time. This is the disconnect that I'm talking about. The laws are one thing. How you administer those laws is something else. The law on that type of, of transparency hasn't really changed. What has changed is that I think certain parts of government are striving administratively to set up the systems that enable them to actually apply the law and then to monitor whether the function are applying the law. So, yes, definitely. You know, it's also a, a double-edged sword, though. In some instances, you do want government to think about who it's buying from. You want it to have a plan for how sensibly it's going to spend money. So, you know, not all planning in a tender context is necessarily unlawful. So, you know, again, coming back to us as the taxpayer and us as the small business, um, we all just want those rules to be known. And that's what you're really talking about. They must be known and applied fairly. And, you know, then we all benefit. And I really think, you know, I sound like a, a, a cheerleader for National Treasury, but I really do think National Treasury is trying its hardest to impose that sort of discipline. And they certainly wouldn't be in favor. And I've had reporting lines. You know, there are hotlines you can phone if you think that sort of thing is happening. And, you know, I would really encourage people to make use of that. Very often people are too scared to report those sort of instances because they don't want to be excluded from the next tender. Certainly. But, you know, nothing can progress if we don't openly confront those sorts of problems. Because uh, this actually is just a follow-up on the first question that I actually asked. Outer uh, is actually going after Central where they're actually now trying to really investigate what actually happened in the process of actually uh, the, the improvement of the mm. highways. Mm. And now we, we are seeing that Outer has got the backup in terms of really following up, but a small business doesn't have that. Are there any mechanisms that small businesses can actually use to really make sure that their voices are heard? Sure. So a lot of the legislation, what it often does, the supply chain management policy, in other words, the rules that govern each department, they should usually publish that supply chain management policy with their tender. Very often there will be an objection process in terms of that supply chain management policy. Very often there will be an appeal process. It's really important to read that carefully, to know the rules that apply to the tender you're participating in, because they very often have very short time periods. You must lodge an objection. 
objection within 14 days. You must lodge an objection within 21 days. And if you don't meet those sorts of time periods, then you're basically without a remedy. Those can very often be pursued cheaply without the need to refer to a lawyer. And so that is definitely the, the very first step that, you know, the small person in, in the street should take. A lot of the difficulty, though, which hopefully things like Gauteng will solve, is that you don't even know that the tender has been awarded. And, you know, those are the sorts of things that people really need to keep on pursuing and fighting. I mean, other than that, you know, there are other general corruption hotlines. National Treasury, you can certainly report um, things to National Treasury. Um, you know, and I, I'm sure that we Do can... you have to give your details or can you just say, I believe... So I think and in are term- you covered by the Whistleblowers mm. Act? So I think in terms of things like the corruption hotline, you don't mm. necessarily need to. If you're actually lodging an objection to a tender, yeah, then, then you, would need yeah, to, you would need to, to provide all of the details mm. because you're actually wanting the decision to be sort of amended or reversed or something like that. Um, one of the issues I wanted to talk to you about is one has got to be very careful when submitting a tender. I know there was a case, and I'm sure you know about it, uh, the Dr. J.S. Morocco municipality where the tenderers omitted to include their original tax certificate and they were disqualified. And uh, the uh, they were disqualified. The people that were after the tender eventually got it. Mm. So one's got to be so careful. And I'm sure you've had many examples of that. Just watch out that you comply with what you need to. Sure. Yeah. So as I said, that the RFP document and the supply chain management policy that goes out, mm. those essentially become the law of the tender. So the, the courts have actually said they they get the um uh, the, the status of subordinate legislation and so you need to treat them as law. If they're saying that you must provide x y or z, you really need to do it. All tenders usually have um place in the time period for submission for you to raise a question or for you to um you know if something seems impossible to comply with you must raise that before you submit your tender and explain why the requirement is impossible to comply with you're then putting a marker in the sand for the fact that there's an unfair requirement that may eventually be enough for you to get that kind of a requirement overturned mm-hmm. but just ignoring a requirement that's impossible to comply with and not submitting the document is likely to have your tender should disqualified people, should people seek professional advice before they submit these very complicated tenders or any tender for that matter sure i mean look if it's if it's important enough enough to your business if it's a really significant um tender that you would contest if you you know felt there was an unfairness it's always better to seek advice prior to the actual submission of the tender rather than wait you know until your time periods have almost expired and then seek the advice so you know a lot of reputable attorneys are um you know moving into this kind of field Mm. it is generally a legal issue um you know that you should seek legal advice on rather than um you know other sorts of advice from people who are maybe kind of helping you just to you know, whatever, facilitate the process and that sort of thing. That that sort of advice isn't really going to help. So, you. the legal advice you recommend that people see someone to help them get the documents in order, make sure everything's right. A lot of a lot of tenderers feel that they're just probably wasting their time because it's already been earmarked for someone else. As Lionel rightly said, there's kind of some, you know, backhanders or whatever. Mm. Not always, but occasionally. Um, should we be scared to submit these tenders, or should we go ahead and do them? Yeah, sure. And I mean, again, this is always just a business decision. Um, and 
the issue is that I think that most government tender processes are well run. Most government departments are run by well-meaning people yeah. who have a mandate to procure goods and services and ultimately are going to be judged from a service delivery perspective by whether they get a good service provider in to deliver the services. So, you know, I think that to, to the largest extent, um, our systems are there and they're working. But what's important is to keep on calling out the instances where um, you think there is something wrong because that just makes the system better. Before we let you go, anything you'd like to add on the tender stuff? Uh, no, I mean, uh, I think that, you know, as I say, our there's so much. It's, it's, <laughs> it's such a vast field, this, isn't it? Yeah. You've been involved uh, in some massive matters. You've applied to court and to stop tenders and to get them going and whatever it may be. Mm. You've been on both sides. There's something you did in London in your previous life many, many years ago that I found very interesting. And I think you were involved in a damages claim. You worked for a certain firm then. Maybe it was when you were much younger. I'm sure it was. Uh, it was the asbestos case. Whatever happened to that? And how many years ago was it? Sure. So, I mean, there were a number of versions of the case. The particular mm-hmm. one I was involved in was the Cape PLC matter that involved communities in Burgess, the Burgessford area and the Preska area mm-hmm. where Cape asbestos had run asbestos mines and mills for a number of years. It affected over 5,000 um, people in those communities, a lot of them quite old by the time the case was going. Yeah. And it was from, as a lawyer, it was a very interesting case because it was about testing whether those sorts of people could have access to the courts in England, yeah. whether their cases could be heard there. What ultimately ended up happening there is that that legal question of jurisdiction yeah. was the one that went all the way through the courts. It went all the way up to the House of Lords. And, uh, the, the company I worked for, Lee Day, was successful in the House of Lords in getting the those communities access to the English legal system and what ultimately happened then in that case was that the company settled. They didn't want the legal points around uh, liability and whether they were in fact liable to be tested in, in the courts because that would have set a precedent, I think, for multinationals that a lot of those sorts of companies what didn't want to What kind of money did those, those poor souls get paid out? Uh, you're yeah. asking me now, and yeah. I wasn't actually involved in the settlement. Okay. Um, I came back to South Africa. But oh. I do think that it was probably in the region of uh, a few hundred thousand mm. that, uh, you know, a lot of it was their, their heirs rather than the actual claimants. Yep. It's been very interesting, Lionel. Extremely. Yeah. yeah. Anything else? No, I think people just need to be careful uh, when they actually go for the tenders, and it, they must just please educate themselves in terms of what that uh, what, what the requirements are and what documentation you yeah, need. Yeah, these tenders are extremely tricky. I've been involved in in submitting some for my for my own companies, and you've got to be spot on. Certainly. Make one little error, and you're gone. And go for it. You know, you stand a good chance like anyone else. You never know your luck. Yeah. Yeah. That was the voice of Claire Tucker we've been talking to. She's from Bowman's. Many thanks, Claire. Thanks a lot for having me. See you again. Thank you.